Well, good evening again, and um, what a great time of worship. Thank you so much to the band. Um, as uh, Hannah has said, and as that little clip introduced, we are speaking uh, into Galatians over this next month. And what an important book uh, for us to engage with. I'm going to be reading uh, right now between verses 1 through 10, if you'd like to join me. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by men, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers with me, to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who'd called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel of heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God, or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Well, Jesus, we want to pray that you would um, open our hearts to a revelation from your word tonight by your Holy Spirit. We thank you again that you're moving amongst us and we pray you'd soften us, Lord, to this word in Jesus' name. Amen. My day normally begins with a frantic mess. Uh, I, I'm not one of those sort of well-planned, well-organized overnight people, so I get up and I think, oh my goodness, what have I got to do today? Normally it involves trying to shovel cereal into my smallest child, which is challenging. He wants to watch Ryan's World on his iPad. And we don't really like iPads in my family, but somehow they've become a big feature of our lives. And so the iPad's going one way and the cereal's going another, and the dog is at the bottom hoping that something might land in his lap. And, um, you know, it's a frantic mess. It's a great wrestle. And in my moments of sort of serenity, they're normally spent with me sort of either checking out the news or having a quick peek on Instagram, which I know isn't very healthy either for the start of my day. And I'm often confronted by pictures of cats. Cats emblazoned with logos like, if you put your back into it, you're going to get there. Or just work harder and you'll achieve your goal. Cat memes are sort of motivating me to start my day. And I, and I dismiss them. I know that uh, we don't need to get motivated by the fear of being average. I know that if we want something you've never had, you have to do something you've never done. I know all these things, but I, I, I laugh and I dismiss them and I kind of cast them out and I think that's not how I'm going to be, begin my day. And yet, somehow those statements rattle around my head. Statements of, sort of self-improvement, self-actualization. Something great's going to happen if I could just hold on to this one statement. I poo-poo them thinking, but surely I'm not only as good as the work I put in. And I drive my children down to the school gates, I give them a hug and a kiss and tell them how much I love them, and, and just before they disappear into the school gates, I say something terrible like, do something amazing today that your future self will thank you for. <laughs> Where did that come from? Somehow it rose up deep within me. 
a cat meme statement to motivate them into life, something that will help them achieve greatness in their day. And they look back at me like, oh my goodness, is that my dad? But you know, the church in Galatia had similar problems to me. I've no doubt that they received Christ and accepted the fullness of a grace that said, I love you just as you are. You don't need to strive for love. Yet somehow, something that they imbibed from the culture or from the setting twisted that narrative slightly and, 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 and led them to a level of unconfidence or insecurity around the grace that they'd first received. Galatia is uh, part of modern-day Antioch, if you like, in Turkey. Uh, it was actually Gaul, Asia, if you remember Asterix and Obelix. Think Asterix and Obelix in Asia, Gauls in Asia. That's basically what Galatia actually is. And, and, and here we have a group of people who, you know, a, a, a church planted by Paul, very kind of alive and vibrant and passionate, and unlike Corinth, somewhere where legality naturally sat well with the people, where, where rules were, were kind of generally accepted. In fact, they were kind of loved. And Paul was being followed around by a group of Jewish Christian missionaries who, again, no doubt had really great intentions, but just a bit like my cat meme, they kept on feeding slightly more than the gospel to the people who were receiving the message. These people knew God's grace story, and yet there was something within them that couldn't give up the idea that they had to work for love, that they had to work for value, they had to work for approval. They had to work for their significance. They couldn't just accept that it was enough to put your faith in Christ and know that you were saved. There was something else you had to do. You know, I think we live in a country that's not massively dissimilar to Galatia. We're kind of Brits. We queue well. You know, other countries, I've got to be honest, they don't queue very well. But they queue really well in England. And if there's a sign that says, do not feed the seagulls, and someone starts feeding the seagulls, everyone starts tutting and goes, look, can't you read the sign? Because we read signs in England. You know, we like signs. We like rules. And generally, we've followed the rules pretty well over the last 18 months. And, you know, when people don't follow the rules, we give them special names and then laugh at them on Instagram. You know, we're generally intolerant of, of, of rule breakers. And so we kind of like it when people say, well, you know, if you want something you've never had, you've got to do something you've never done. You've got to try harder. You've got to achieve more. Or maybe if, you, if, you're, if, if you're more perfect, then you'll be more acceptable. Follow the rules better, and you might be more loved. It's natural for us. It kind of fits. And Paul writes to them in verse 6, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. It's quite a challenge. It's quite a hard opener, isn't it? Dear mum, having a really great time down here in Devon, fantastic. I'm astonished that you have turned away from making Sunday lunch for dad. And are turning to ready meals from cook. You know, it's pretty hardcore. It's a pretty sort of... It's quite an out there. It's quite an aggressive entree. Paul's done a lovely little doxology, a lovely little welcome. This is what the gospel means. I'm astonished you're going to walk away from this. I wonder what they thought the reason for this was. Now, we haven't had to water our plants, have we, for the last kind of 
four months. So this kind of this illustration feels a bit out of keeping, but just thinking about it today in London, you know, you sort of you, you turn on the tap, they sell really short hoses in home base for Londoners. So you can like stretch out your hose and feel like you've got to the end of the hose. See for like a really big garden in London. Really big kind of really big garden. Got got right to the end of the hose. It's only like three feet long. I got right to the end of the hose, I gotta lean back and spray the plants right at the back of my courtyard. You know. It's only six feet wide, but, you know, spray right at the back with this, because I've, you know, got to reach the end of my hose. And uh, in my, my house, you know, sort of pull out the hose, you know, all three feet of it, and you know, try and spray the plants at the back, and then the water goes off. And I'm normally thinking my son, Joseph, is hiding around the corner, and he's seen I'm watering, and he's turning off the tap. And I'm like, I can't see around there to the tap. So, Joseph, are you, Joseph, and Joseph actually turns out is inside. And I'll track back to the tap, thinking the tap is off, but then I pull that yellow clip and then it jets out all over the floor and gets my feet soaking wet. And there's nothing wrong with the flow, but actually when I track my way back up the three-footer pipe, I see that it's twisted. No water's coming through. You know, so often when it comes to the grace of God, we assume that God has turned off the tap of his love for us, turned off the blessings turned off the affection. And our way of dealing with that is pulling the, the hose a little bit harder, which amazingly makes the kink a little bit more hard to outwork. It stops the flow even more determinedly. We think we've got to work harder to make God's grace flow in our lives. The problem isn't with the tap of God's love. The problem is, with, is our ability to translate that from source to life. The blockage is in us. So often that moment of going, oh, uh, uh, I've got to try harder to be loved. Maybe then God will turn on the tap again. That's where we end up getting stuck. And that's where the Galatians got stuck. In verse 3 to 5, Paul says to the Galatians, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself up for our sins to rescue us forever and ever. It's like Paul saying, let me just remind you at the start of this letter of the truth of the fact that God's love is flowing to you right now. He couldn't, he couldn't pitch it any better, could he? Grace and peace to you. If you've got a group of strivers all pulling really hard, you want to say, settle down. What do you say? Stop? No. That will make them angry. Grace and peace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and Paul wants to come in on that pitch. Like if you want to, I'm supposed to be introducing Galatians to you. If you want to introduce Galatians, think about Paul both rebuking and settling. There's this kind of duality that we so often need and often don't really like. We've got a little puppy which you've probably heard a lot about called Magnum. And, and it's, it, you know, it's challenging, dog training. I thought I knew about how to help children learn stuff. And, you know, I've been a priest for 17 years. I thought I could teach people a few things. Try and train a small Datsun a few things. It's actually pretty impossible. But, you know, what you need is you need, you need settlement. And you also need discipline. You know, you need instruction and you need calm. And teachers here amongst you are nodding, going, yeah, 
that's right, that's what I do in my classroom. I bring calm and also I bring discipline. Because you cannot actually discipline in chaos. It doesn't work. You just find yourself shouting more loudly than other people who are also shouting. But Paul's saying, settle down. Now, I'm devastated that you're choosing a different gospel. And what he's saying is, it's really interesting this word, gospel. Quangelion is in the Greek, and it literally means God's good news. So it's like a unique thing. It's like Toblerone. You know, when you say it, there's only one thing you think of. Um, there's not, not like another Toblerone sort of thing. There's only one. So when, when Paul says, Quangelion, everyone goes, oh, that's God's good news. But when he says, actually, a, a different gospel, what he's saying is, is different good news which is really no good news at all. You know, the Jewish Christians were offering this need to work for love and approval, and he's saying that's just not good news. It's not just like a distortion or a little extra added cherry on the cake of grace. It's like a destruction of the entire thing. It's no good news at all. I've been specializing, as you may know, in emotional health within the church for quite some time now, and I wrote a book called The Perfectionism Book, uh, really looking at this issue of, of the inability we have to really receive grace, the, the passion we have to work for love, and we work in all sorts of different ways. And it's really fitting perfectionism with what Paul's describing here in this different good news. He uses another Greek word there called metastropasai, which, which actually comes from the word metastasize, which we use when we talk about cancer. Uh, it sort of spreads surreptitiously within the body. He uses the same cells that are healthy and good and turns them into something destructive and defeating. And he's treating this new, not good news, Quangelion, as, as a sort of cancer in the church that's going to steal our joy and our ability to receive, but it has even far greater and more negative effects than, than just for our own sake. As a church, we're passionate about transforming society and meeting the needs of the poor and, and, and the underprivileged. And the thing about this natured perfectionism, this not good news, is it makes us incredibly introspective Christians. We become quite narcissistic. We start thinking, I've got to work harder for love. You know, I've got to get God's approval rather than I'm an approved workman or workwoman and I'm going to go and do the things that God has called me to. Now, I really believe, as Paul understood here, that, that if we didn't deal with this cancer in the church, the church would never be efficient in demonstrating the love of God to a broken and hurting world because Christians would be so wrapped up with, oh my goodness, am I doing it right? You know, I need to go on another Christian course. I need to do like the beta, ceta, dita, theta. Come on, there must be something beyond that that I can do so I can be a better Christian and be more approved of by God. And when I've got through to course G, then I'll maybe be able to meet the needs of the poor. You know, that's the danger. And I think the devil can have a field day with our spirituality as much as he can do with our sin. You know, Corinth was lost in licentiousness and Galatia were, were lost in self-centeredness, that I could work out my own salvation. 
you know, by just being better. It's funny, isn't it, how it doesn't sound that bad. If I said to you, oh, do you want to be better? You'd all go, yes, amen. I want to be better. I want to be like more holy, great. You know, perfectionism doesn't sound that bad. We're good at it in the church when we recruit people. You know, you get all the all the things in, all the all the job applications, and it says there's that slot that says, you know, uh, what are your strengths? You know, as Christians, you know, you should never fill that all the way full because you'll never get the job because of pride. But you know, fill it three quarters full because you know if it's not filled, then you're unemployable. But it's overfilled, you're unemployable. So just just enough is enough. And then you go on to the next section, which is even worse, which is which is your weaknesses. Now, of course, if you don't put anything in the box, that's also pride, and you're definitely not getting the job. And if you overfill it, you're unemployable as well, so you're definitely not getting the job either. So you've got to be very careful not to overfill it, and even half is too much. So then you have this little brainwave and think, I know, I'm a perfectionist. No, that sounds too strong. I'm a bit of a perfectionist, as in the good bits. I work long hours for low pay and get everything right. Welcome to the church. You know, it's funny, isn't it, how that all sounds quite good. You know, it's easy to dress up this new good news and make it sound quite good, quite nice, quite helpful. And it's quite easy to see, despite hearing, if you like, probably the best preacher of the millennia, Paul, you might then be slightly foxed in by a few of these Jewish Christian missionaries who are following on his coattails to say, oh yeah, by the way, just one tiny thing that Paul missed out, you do actually need to get circumcised. Oh, wow. Ow, really? You know, that's how surreptitious it was. And, and the, the funny thing is that's how surreptitious it is in our own lives. Amanda Jenkins, author of Confessions of a Raging Perfectionist, commented in a recent interview, I've struggled to give and receive grace. Funny, isn't it? Secular author. I've struggled to give and receive grace because this other gospel means it's not just hard for you to receive grace, it's hard for you to offer grace. The Galatian Christians uh, were not doing an activity that wasn't fitting for Christians. No one was going to go around Galatia saying, oh, look, like in Corinth, you're sinning all the more so grace might abound. They looked good. They sounded good. They could have been in this church. It's that they were accepting something fundamentally blocked by the very essence of what it meant to be a Christian, that you're saved by grace, not by work so that no man might boast, that you're loved, that you're saved, that you have infinite value not because you have what you have or how you look or what you achieve or become, because of what Christ has already done in your life. You know, it's funny, I, I, I preach this message to me and to you. I've been a priest for quite a long time. And you find it's something that constantly slips. Like sailing a boat, you'd think you'd just sit down, pull the rope that pulls in the sail and hold the wooden bit that directs the direction and then you'll just turn up at your destination. But you have to make a thousand micro-adjustments all the time to stay on course with grace. Something will always drag you off and say you're not enough. You're not good-looking enough. You're not healthy enough. You're not, you're not clever enough. You're not holy enough. And some of those things you're like going, yeah, right, but actually, hold on a minute. Maybe I am because Christ has made me holy. And I'm working out my holiness in response to the love of God that I already know. You know, what's fascinating about Paul was he could have been the greatest legalist the world's ever seen. 
In fact, he was the largest legalist that the world had seen at the time. He was so legalistic that he was going around persecuting Christians, hoping, breathing murderous threats of violence, it says in Acts chapter 9. He was educated by a rabbinic scholar called Gamaliel. He had Roman citizenship and he was a Jew. The guy was like five stars. He was like Matthew McConaughey. I mean, the guy was a sort of legend who is loved. And, and he could have dined out on all of those credentials. But in Philippians 3, 7 to 9, he says, Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Wow. Think about that for a minute. This is not some hard-on-his-luck guy who sort of rolled in a bit bedraggled and hasn't a lot going for him. Who's thinking, this Christian thing is quite good for me because it kind of, it's a bit of an uplift. This is a full-on Ferrari coming into the garage and saying, strip me out. I got nothing of my own. Everything is considered loss. Absolutely everything aside from Christ. It's an amazing thing. It's amazing change. In a world which has become so absorbed with image, status, and influence, we're under huge pressure to exchange the good news of God's grace for the gospel of perfection. And it's no good news at all. Writer Annie Wilson Schaaf says, perfectionism is self-abuse of the highest order. It's the unbeatable, unreasonable taskmaster, the kink in the hose that leaves us exhausted and dry. She didn't say the last bit, that would have been too synchronistic. That was my addition, sorry. Long quote. You know, I'm really excited about unkinking the hose on Trinity Sunday because last week we had a real move of God's spirit and I, I haven't been able to get in touch with a few people I would have liked to this week because who shared words of knowledge and who were responding to words of knowledge and prophetic words that had impacted them. I'd love to get a chance to kind of get them out there because God was really doing stuff. It was really amazing to hear God speaking powerfully to individuals here, prophetically, through people who didn't really know them. And I think God's spirit is on the move amongst us. Imagine if we could align ourselves to grace fully and then outwork grace with passion. Think about what that would look like for our local community here in Parsons Green. Think about what that might look like for our local shopkeepers or, I know James actually prayed with the people in Naive today, which is really great. Um, but think about what that would look like for all the people that are sitting out there at the moment getting drunk on Parsons Green right now. How can we impact them? If we're looking at ourselves when, well, we're wasting our time. But if we're looking to them and saying, Lord, have mercy, help us. How can we show them your love? Then we're on the move and the Lord can make a way, even if it seems quite difficult and awkward to say anything. Psychologist Hewitt and Flett helped us to clarify perfectionism by breaking it down into three core categories in what was called the multidimensional perfectionism scale. He said that there are self-orientated perfectionists, and, and that's really who Paul was talking to dynamically. They're people who say, well, I'm not enough. In fact, God isn't enough to save me. Uh, I need to do better. I need to try harder all of the time. And then there are other orientated perfectionists. There's the ones who can't even look at themselves. And so they invert their aggression and push it back out and criticize other people and say, you're not enough. 
And then there are societally orientated perfectionists who look around at all the billboards and images everywhere and say, well, society says that I'm not enough. Fair to say that there's a lot of dimensions to the way in which we can understand ourselves of not being enough. But, but I'm passionate about you knowing that you are enough because Christ has made you enough, not just so you can sit down and go, great, I'm done. I am a full package Christian. I am so sorted out. I'm going to watch Netflix now and relax. You know, the purpose is not that we become introspective or self-orientated. The purpose is that we demonstrate the love of God to the lost, the last, and the least. That's the purpose. You know, God's called us by name and transformed us because he loves us, but he also loves them. And he's saying, now show them my love. But if we're unsure of that love, if our tanks aren't filled, how can we give away what we ourselves have not received? You know, it's a two-step process, receive and then give. Receive and then give, receive and then give. And we mustn't just receive and then not give. But equally, when we receive, we need to make sure we've really received. The, Paul's just asking this key question, verse 10. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God, or am I trying to please men? If I was still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. I, I think Paul was a bit insecure, if I'm honest. That's quite a bold statement for this time on a Sunday night. But, but Paul makes his credentials felt right at the very beginning, not his credentials of academia or ethnicity, you know, not, not the fact he was Roman, Jewish, not the fact that he was multilingual or that he traveled really well or that he was really influential, but that he was called by Christ. Because Peter, he was the one who received the commission to lead the church. And the Petrine church in Jerusalem was the big deal. And ultimately, all those early disciples spent time in Jesus' presence. And, and Paul was feeling a bit, you know, oh, hold on a minute. He could have been a bit sort of, oh, uh, am I really the real deal? Am I really allowed? Is this okay? Do I have to get permission? But he states it confidently. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus. He puts himself right up there. I am an apostle. That's what I am. I've received a full measure of the commissioning of God to do this work. And so when he says, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ, something has changed. It's a testimony. He's not saying, if I were trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ because that would suggest he hadn't done it before. He's saying, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. He knows the trap of trying to please men, of trying to gain approval, which is partly why he ended up trying to persecute Christians in the first place, because he wanted everyone to say, hey, Paul, he knows the law better than anyone. He's let go of that ego ideal. He's let go of the self-righteousness that comes through overworking and over-pleasing. And he's chosen something else instead. God wants to liberate us tonight from the internalized judgments of perfectionism, of this other gospel, and into the wonders of his grace, grace that isn't dependent upon our works, but upon his will. You know, um, I was cycling down um, uh, Ken High Street, uh, when I, just when I was still working at HTB. And, um, and I was cycling along, and then I saw, you know, like these pillars, you know, they've got these, they've got sort of 
posts, you know, with light lamp posts everywhere. And, and I saw this picture of this cat. It was quite a big picture. And, and there was probably 500 of these posters up. And you know when you see something so many times, you feel like, okay, I've, all right, I've got it. I'm going to read it. So I kind of, I pulled up my bike outside Barker's and I looked at one of these posters. And it said, disco, uh, lost cat, disco. And it said, elderly cat, in brackets, 17 years. It said, deaf, um, uh, what's it, so let me write it again. Uh, sorry, yeah, disco, cat, elderly, 17 years. That's 84 years equivalent in human age. Life expectancy, I think, is 12 to 15 years. Um, and I'm thinking, hold on a minute, should I, like, they're very optimistic here, 17 years old, they put up 500 posters for a safe return. Should I just call them and say, I, I think it might have died? Uh, but, but I didn't. And they said, skinny, tabby, deaf, noisy, and very affectionate, friendly cat. I was thinking, well, this doesn't bode well, does it? It's skinny, it's probably not very healthy, and then it's deaf. And I was looking at sort of the traffic, zooming up kind of Ken High Street, thinking about this 17-year-old, very unhealthy, deaf cat, wondering if it's ever going to make its way home. Maybe I should call them a pastoral call. Hello, I'm a vicar. I was just on my way home. I saw all your posters. I thought I might come around and talk to you some, maybe talk through your grief. Um, and I, obviously I didn't. But you know, God spoke to me in that moment when I saw, when I saw that advert and I, and I read that poster. It sounds really strange, but I've really felt God say to me, Will, who would put up a poster like that? And I remember thinking, oh, I don't know. And God said, Will, who would put up a poster like that? And I suddenly thought, you would, Lord. You would. You would put up a poster for this deaf, skinny, 17-year-old cat. Because it doesn't matter that it's young and beautiful and has a thick coat and hears perfectly well and, you know, costs thousands of pounds. Because God just cares about each and every one of us no matter whatever imperfections or struggles we might have, whatever issues we might have, God would set up posters all the way down Ken High Street for our safe return. Because God just goes after the one, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, and says, because I love you. Not because you're better or brighter or good enough or have tried harder, just because I love you. I love you and I long for you and I want to welcome you home. You're precious to me. In a world that's so full of comparisons, in a world that wants to make you feel less than, in a world that wants you to believe that love is conditional, that you have to try harder and work harder for it, that grace can't really be yours, it's too good a story to be true. God's saying, no, I want you. I love you. I long for you to know it. I long for you to believe it because when you do, that's when really miraculous things will begin to happen. Brendan Manning, one of my favorite authors, says in All Is Grace, a ragamuffin memoir, this vulgar grace is indiscriminate compassion. It works without asking anything of us. Grace is sufficient even though we huff and we puff with all our might to try and find something or someone it cannot cover. Grace is enough. He is enough. Jesus is enough.